Four, the possibilities of depopulation. An analysis of the total fertility rates for the white population in the US is of interest. The total fertility rate means the total number of births experienced by women bearing children when they have reached the menopause. In 1800, the total fertility rate was 7.04. In 1850, it was 5.42. In 1875, 4.55. In 1900, 3.56. In 1925, 2.84. A low was reached in 1936 of 2.10. A high in 1957 of 3.58 with a decline since then. There has been a steady growth of population in the United States despite the decline in the total fertility rate. The population has increased because the fertility rate has still been better than merely reproducing the existing population and because of immigration. In Europe too, between 1650 and 1900, the population growth was marked. During that period, there was 1 a steady decline in the percentage of world population inhabiting Africa. 2. A declining cycle in the percentage distribution of population in all Asia outside of the USSR. 3. An increasing cycle in the percentage distribution of population in the two Americas and Oceania. 4. A continuing rise in the percentage distribution of population in Europe and the USSR. Populations in Asia and Africa declined in their percentage of the world population. Sometimes they also decline numerically as well in limited areas. The significant fact is the marked growth in Europe and the Americas. Why this startling difference between 1650 and 1900? The reasons are deeply rooted in cultural tradition. First, quote, medieval end quote Europe saw a major cultural revolution in the shift from a religious emphasis on asceticism, monasticism and the other world to a Catholic humanism with scholasticism. Franciscans and Dominicans concerning themselves increasingly with this world. The secular clergy took over religious leadership progressively from the monks with an increasing insistence on the church's relevance to the problems of this world. Second, the Renaissance introduced secular humanism and a this-worldly orientation into full-blown power and respectability. Third, the Protestant Reformation, while hostile to both Catholic humanism and the Renaissance, and insistent on God's sovereignty, was dedicated to a biblical materialism, to the application of Christian faith to man's common life. Fourth, the Enlightenment re-enthrones humanism and the humanistic doctrine of progress into Western culture. Thus, Catholic man, Protestant man and Enlightenment man were now dedicated to conquering the material world with all the robust freshness of a confident faith. The result was intellectual, religious, scientific, educational, colonial and biological fertility. Western man went forth to conquer, confident that God, progress and history were on his side. Since 1900, a new trend has set in. First of all, Christian missions have introduced into Asia and Africa a new faith and a new impetus. Medical missionaries have reduced the death rate and missionary schools have introduced both Christianity and humanism, creating thereby a revolutionary ferment. Second, Western colonialism has introduced both Western science and technology 
and Western concepts of inevitable and necessary progress. The result has been a vast charge of social energy into Asia and Africa and biological fertility as a result of this new impetus, at the same time that pessimism and loss of faith began to infect Western culture. There are those who see the only, quote, natural checks on growth, end quote, as disease and famine. The only answer when these natural checks are removed is mechanical, that is, birth control, which is seen as a remedy to an uncontrolled, skyrocketing rate of animal growth. The, quote, promise, end quote, of birth control is deliverance from an unrelenting biology. Otherwise, as John F. Kennedy suggested, could this nation, this world, be headed for the fate of the lemming? The pressing world problem, we are told, is this, quote, fact, end quote, of growing overpopulation. The population explosion is creating world hunger. But is population growth so mechanical? We have cited the cultural facts which led to the modern growth. An interesting modern reversal of population growth in Ireland is cited by Bates. One of the best demonstrations of the action of the Malthusian propositions is shown by the population history of Ireland. Through the Middle Ages, the Irish population was presumably stable, like that of England and the rest of Europe, limited partly by the nature of the crops, but also by the system of land tenure, whereby even a serf, before he could marry and raise children, had to gain rights to land for crops or pasturage. The attempts of the English to conquer and exploit the country led to the breakdown of the traditional systems. Then, soon after 1600, the potato was introduced from America. Perfectly adapted to Irish climate and soil, this plant provided a completely new means of subsistence. According to one contemporary estimate, an acre planted to potatoes would support a family of five through the year, and the sod hot for living quarters could be easily built in a few days with the help of neighbours and friends. Children, instead of being a burden, helped take care of the potato patch. The Irish population started on a spectacular spree of reproduction to keep up with the means of subsistence provided by the miraculous potato. It is generally thought that the pre-potato population of Ireland was about 2 million. The first regular census of 1821 showed a population of 6,802,000. The census of 1831 of 1841, 8,175,000. The poverty and miserable living conditions of the Irish peasant became notorious even at the time when poverty and misery were common enough everywhere, but the population continued to grow. Then, in 1845, disaster appeared in the form of the potato blight, a disease new to Europe. The crop was ruined that year and the next. A million or more persons died directly or indirectly from starvation and the outward movement of the Irish population was speeded, continuing all through the century. The population in 1960, ERA and Northern Ireland, was 4,259,000, about half the size reported in 1841. It is clear that in this case, the Malthusian, quote, moral restraint, end quote, is operating, since Ireland has the lowest marriage rate, the oldest age of marriage of any country. Somehow the disaster of the blight jolted the Irish culture in a way that led to an equilibrium between population and resources, which makes one wonder whether disaster is necessary before such an adjustment can be made. 
The Relationship of the Irish Famine to the Exhaustion of Soil by Mono-Agriculture by Single Crop Farming deserves attention, as does the effect of such farming on the soils of today. There is reason to believe, too, that pesticides may create a problem for farming and for food supplies by their destruction of animal and insect life and their effect on the soil. Moreover, some countries, by their incompetence and political chaos, are almost certainly headed for disaster. Paul and William Paddock have placed Haiti, Egypt and India in the can't-be-saved group in their study, Famine, 1975-1967. The modern humanistic confidence in science has led to an undue confidence that plant diseases can be overcome quickly and easily, whereas the problem is a serious one and the defeat's very real. The inability of science to cope with the fungus which destroyed the American chestnuts must be cited. Out of an estimated billion trees, there were about 180 left in all North America in 1963, with no assurance these would not also die. Also, the elms of this continent are going, and so on. Technology is overrated today with respect to its ability to cope with man's problems, and science is assumed to provide a quick answer to all problems. This assumption itself is grounds for disaster. But it is an assumption which comes readily to urban man, and the world today is dominated by urban centres which have little awareness of the earth-bound realities of life. Urbanisation has led to an imbalance in man's view of the world. Neoplatonism and monasticism led to a non-biblical contempt of this world. A new form of this contempt of the world has arisen out of scientism and urbanisation. The material realities are taken for granted and despised. A, quote, hippie, end quote, girl summed up this attitude by her contemptuous response to a query as to the problem of food and labouring for food. Food is... Another factor is the disturbance to normal population growth by welfareism, which has produced a higher rate of growth among social parasites. Welfareism plus the growing sexual immorality have had an effect. Jeffrey May's comments are to the point. When the difficulties of legal control are so great and the failure is so obvious, why should the law have sought to maintain the doctrine of chastity? Why has the question of morality entered into a voluntary sexual connection which does not injure the two persons taking part in it or any third person, and which, moreover, can do no injury to the child which may be engendered by it? The answer is that Though no individual may suffer by voluntary non-marital sex expression, society conceives itself to be suffering. It is losing potential strength. The vital statistics support this conception. Parents who indulge in extramarital sexual activity show a lesser fecundity than married parents, and their offspring are less likely to survive infancy. European averages indicated some years ago that while 100 prostitutes will give birth to 60 children, 100 married women will give birth to between 400 and 500 children. Of families in which there are actions brought for dissolution on the grounds of adultery, a noticeable plurality have no children and only a very few have more than one child. More important is the disproportion in mortality rate between legitimate and illegitimate children. The ratio of stillbirths is much lower among the children of married parents. The deaths of infants born to married parents 
are fewer in proportion than the deaths of illegitimate infants. In England and Wales, in 1926, for every 100 deaths of legitimate infants, there were over 190 deaths of illegitimate infants. Throughout Europe, this disproportion is appreciable, and in some countries, even greater than in England. It is said that the childbed mortality of unmarried mothers is twice that of married mothers. The consequence of these facts is that the persons who indulge in non-marital sex expression have been dying out and breeding themselves out. Unmarried women and divorced parents have few children proportionately who survive infancy. Parents who are living according to the social conventions instill in their children those same conventions. The children who in practice disbelieve those teachings will themselves have less chance of progeny. The conventions of sexual morality have thus maintained themselves. Welfareism is a revolutionary step against the realities of moral responsibility and its social power. Welfareism is an attempt to subsidise irresponsibility and penalise responsibility by heavy taxation. This is its practical effect, even where it is not its intent. But the decline of a responsible middle class means the collapse of the social fabric and the decline of all. A parasite cannot survive the death of the host body. What can cause a decline in population? Sauvy assures us that there are only four ways to meet overpopulation. 1. Return to an increased death rate, either voluntarily, according to the more or less clearly expressed desire of some, or involuntarily, as a result of a shortage or of cataclysms, such as war. 2. Emigration to other lands. The population decreases by exits from the territory. This would be a geographical solution. 3. Progress in production of subsistence means sufficient to feed everyone and even to improve welfare. This is the so-called economic solution. The rhythm of growth remains, but without harmful results. 4. Reduction of the birth rate, sufficient to slow down or stop the growth of the population. This is the so-called demographic solution. In one sense, Sauvies claim that these are the only ways of coping with population is right. His four categories are broad enough to cover most things. But, in another sense, Sauvies' statement is wrong. First, it sees population as a growth upwards, and hence as a problem. That is, a problem of overpopulation. But what if depopulation should be the problem? And what of Carl Brandt's statement that the US is underpopulated? Sauvie has set the problem so that the answer lies only in an indicated direction. More than once in history, men have assumed a problem and then provided an, quote, inescapable, end quote, answer. Thus, the Japan of the shogunate had a small population as compared to modern Japan, but the shogunate believed it to be too much. As a result, the Japanese were subjected to the annual human mabiki the thinning of the human crop by abortion and infanticide. Again, Rome saw itself as overpopulated as it faced a growing problem of welfareism with less and less financial resources. Tertullian wrote in Deanima, The strongest witness to the vast population of the earth to which we are a burden, and she can scarcely provide for our needs, as our demands grow greater, our complaints against nature's inadequacy are heard by all. The scourges of pestilence, Famine, 
wars and earthquakes have come to be regarded as a blessing to overcrowded nations since they serve to prune away the luxuriant growth of the human race. For Tertullian, living in a sick age, man was sick and there were too many people. But from our perspective, the world end was obviously not overpopulated. Second, Sauvy's statement assumes a mechanical or a self-conscious answer, a deliberate answer, or else a forced answer such as war. But is history to be read materialistically? Long before the Romans saw the barbarians invade Rome, Rome was depopulated by both a declining birth rate and plague. The sickness of Roman culture manifested itself in an inability to reproduce itself or to survive. But, it is argued, modern medical science has given us a safeguard against plague. Is this true? The Rome which succumbed to the plague had far better medicine and sanitation than a virile and resistant young Rome. When the Black Death struck, quote, medieval, end quote, Europe, sanitation, bathing and medicine were advanced, and not until late in the 19th century were similar conditions of sanitation and bathing achieved. As we analyse plagues, certain facts appear. First, plagues appear at the end of an era, at the end of an age. Plagues are thus a phenomenon of the collapse of a culture or a civilization. Boccaccio's Decameron is an epitaph on an era, written in 1348 in a time of flight from plague in Florence. Boccaccio's description of the plague is vivid. In this sore affliction and misery of our city, the reverenced authority of the laws, both human and divine, was all in a matter dissolved and fallen into decay, for lack of the ministers and executors thereof, who, like other men, were all either dead or sick, or else left so destitute of followers that they were unable to exercise any office, wherefore every one had license to do whatsoever pleased him. Indeed, leaving be that townsmen avoided townsmen, and that well-nigh no neighbour took thought unto other and that kinsfolk seldom or never visited one another, and held no converse together save from afar, this tribulation had stricken such terror to the hearts of all, men and women alike, that brother forsook brother, uncle-nephew, and sister-brother, and oftentimes wife-husband. Nay, what is yet more extraordinary and well-nigh incredible, fathers and mothers refused to tend their very children, as they had not been theirs. Many breathed their last in the open street, whilst other many, for all they died in the houses, made it known to the neighbours that they were dead rather by the stench of their rotting bodies than otherwise, and of these and others who died all about the whole city was full. But before this radical collapse brought on by the plague, there was already an inner collapse of the old order. Significantly, those most involved socially in the world of the day died most frequently, that is, those between twenty and sixty, whereas the aged and the very young suffered much less. In other words, the element in the population which, in terms of physical health, should have had the greatest resistance to infection had the least. But this same group was the most involved in the religious decline and moral decay of the day, and hence most vulnerable. The aged and the young were either not yet involved in the spirit of the age or were closer to an earlier certainty. Again, an analysis of the decline of the Indian population in central Mexico is of interest. Lewis Hankey states, 
Another example from recent historical studies may be seen in the population estimates of Bora and Cook. They calculate that some 25 million Indians lived in central Mexico when Cortés first landed, and that by 1548 this dense population had melted away to about 6 million. These figures are bound to reopen the question of whether the statistics of Las Casas were so, quote, exaggerated, end quote, after all. Or he had stated in 1542 that 4 million had died in Mexico since the conquest began. The lethal forces responsible for this estimated loss of 19 million human beings may have been malaria or intestinal viruses rather than Spanish cruelty. But opponents of Las Casas, who condemn him on the ground that the New World had a much smaller population than he claimed, will now have to re-examine this argument. It is easy to blame everything in the Spanish, and there is no denying their greed and guilt. But there is also the reality of the psychological and physical collapse of the Aztecs, as well as their military failure. Was their culture not ready for collapse? Granted, they may have lacked immunity to new contagions, but the same was true of the Spaniards. Why were the Spaniards not decimated by the diseases of the Aztecs? Why were the Spaniards more resistant? The mind and faith of man clearly affects his body. Psychosomatic medicine has demonstrated much with respect to the individual. It is time to recognise the effect of mind and faith on the social group. The first settlers from England faced major problems in North America. Those whose hearts turned homeward most died first of all, a significant fact. Consider also the evidence presented by Dr. Simeons. Psychosomatic ailments account for the bulk of urban man's ill health and are the most frequent causes of his death. Once the principle that the psyche can cause serious bodily disorders had been clearly stated, it soon became necessary to include an ever-widening variety of diseases in this category. Today, it is easier and certainly safer to say which diseases are not psychosomatic than to enumerate those which are. Their number is growing too rapidly. Psychic factors may play a considerable role in permitting microorganisms to establish themselves in the human body and cause disease. An example of this is Asiatic cholera. Working in the midst of an epidemic outbreak of cholera, one cannot help noticing the strange fact that the healthy adolescent, the busy mother and the wage-earning father are more often stricken than the very young children and the old and decrepit. Cholera is caused by swallowing a microbe called a vibrio and it is known that the cholera vibrio is highly sensitive to acids. The acid that is always present in the normal human stomach is sufficiently strong to kill the cholera vibrio almost instantly. How then does the vibrio overcome this acid barrier which separates it from the small intestines, where, in the alkaline contents, it can thrive and start its murderous activity? The answer seems to be that it cannot. Only if the normal flow of acid in the stomach is shut off is the vibrio able to reach its destination. Now, the one big thing that stops the flow of acid in the stomach is fear and panic. So, it may come about that those most terrified of death are just the ones the cholera kills, while those too young to understand the danger, and those to whom life seems hardly worth living, and who fatalistically tend to the sick and dying around them, may survive unscathed because the secretions of their gastric juice is not emotionally inhibited. 
Fear might thus play an important role in the selection of victims, and in this sense, it would not be incorrect to say that even in cholera, psychosomatic mechanisms can be of importance. Similar factors may be involved in the sudden onset of some cases of bacillary dysentery or in typhoid fever, but not in plague, where the bacillus is injected straight into the blood by the bite of a rat flea. Note the fact that, as with the plague, cholera affects the healthy most of all, and the young and aged least. Contrary to simians, there are scholars who trace the incidence of plague to a change in the nature of man, that is, a change in man's conception of his nature, a change of faith. Dr. J. H. Vandenberg of the University of Leiden, in a work on the human body, as yet not translated into English, develops this thesis. Dr. Vandenberg correlates each incidence of plague with a radical development in human thought which shatters man's previous conception of himself and the world. His choice of emphasis concerning the crisis of faith can be argued. His conclusions are more difficult to challenge. When a plague disappears, according to Vandenberg, various reasons are cited. First, it can be held that man has now an immunity to the bacillus, but such immunity does not exist. Second, it can be argued that better hygiene has eliminated the plague or plagues, but there is no evidence of any correlation between hygiene and the retreat of the plague. Thus, while it can be said that after 1840 the plague retreated from Turkey and Egypt, where better hygiene came into existence, the fact remains that it retreated also from Persia after 1840 without any change in sanitary conditions. Third, it is sometimes held that the plague has lost its virulence, but again the evidence is to the contrary. Local epidemics after 1680 were equally severe as the preceding ones. Fourth, it is held that the black rat, which lives closer to people and thus communicates its fleas more readily to people, was pushed aside by the brown rat, which lives in sewers and not as closely to people, thus removing much danger of contagion. But the plague disappeared from London after 1666, and the brown rat did not triumph over the black rat until 1725. Fifth, the Great Fire in London is credited with destroying the area of infection, but the parishes of London most severely stricken by the plague were not burned, so that cleansing by fire is not a valid argument. Thus, Vandenberg states there has been no acceptable explanation until now for the disappearance of the plague from Europe. From 1348 to 1680, the plague was epidemic in Europe. Before 1348 and after 1680, the plague was local and brief-lived in Europe. Why the relative immunity before 1348 and after 1680? According to Vandenberg, there will never be found a reasonable explanation without resort to causes of a metabiotic nature as well as to natural causes. A change in man's conception of himself, of his inner world, produces new relationship to the world and a loss of older certainties and immunities. Plagues are thus not matters of rats or rat fleas, but a human matter. The plague occurs not because of rats or fleas, not because of man's environment, but because man changes and therefore the world changes for him. The changing outlook of man, thus, is important to a history of man's susceptibility to plague. The pertinent question now is this.
Are we at the end of an intellectual era, and thus ripe for plague? We are clearly in the last stages of humanism and its decay, in the last days of Enlightenment culture. As clearly as in the last days of Rome, or in 1348, we are at the end of an age. The radical disillusionment with humanism by the humanists themselves is already apparent. Sigmund Freud, a humanist, himself contributed greatly to the collapse of humanistic faith. Cultural dropouts are again, as in the past, a telling index to collapse. The beatniks, the hippies, the student revolts and the negro revolutionaries are all cultural dropouts. They hate and seek to destroy their humanistic sponsors and creators because they regard the world of humanism as a fraud. They themselves are humanists, but humanists in decay, dropouts, whose only faith is in destruction. The world is ripe for plague. The prospects for depopulation are fearfully real. The prospects for overpopulation are largely fictional. Those most involved will perish first. Those who are most involved include both those who love and those who hate this humanistic culture and of nothing else. The sterility of hate, the futility of destruction, will involve the dropouts in self-destruction. And those who, like Lot's wife, love the perishing world and turn back to it because they cannot live without it, they too shall perish. The dropouts and the drop-ins have no future. Martin Luther moved freely and boldly among the plague-stricken. He was too concerned with shaping the future under God to succumb. His favourite psalm expressed his faith. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. Psalm 118 verse 17 The future belongs to Christian reconstruction.